I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, former Bloomberg News reporter and investigative journalist David DeYoung joins us for a fascinating discussion about his new book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. We'll be discussing a number of families that prospered under the Third Reich and even in the years afterwards. Some of these families are even associated with brands that are household names today. We'll also be discussing the American role in the fates of these families after the war. It's a rather unnerving story that gets into the issue of how the wealthy can often avoid justice or, at the very least, a reckoning with the past. So, without any further ado, let's get right to it with David DeYoung, author of Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with. David de Jong, author of Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. How are you doing today? I'm good, GJ. I'm, I'm great. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, you initially uh, had reported for uh, Bloomberg News on issues related to sort of the hidden wealth of uh, billionaire fortunes. Uh, could you tell us just a little bit briefly about uh, how you started uh, delving into the topic of Nazi billionaires. 
Absolutely. Um, so I started on a new team with Bloomberg News back in you know, late November 2011. And the team was dedicated or the new investigative team was dedicated to reporting and researching, you know, hidden wealth, um, non-stock exchange listed, family controlled companies. Um, and you know, billionaire fortunes and, you know, as I said, hidden wealth and, and offshore structures and, and tech structures and, and, and such. And I was actually hired as one of the reporters covering North America, um, reporting from New York. Um, but I was soon asked because I'm native Dutch um, to if I could report on the German speaking countries. Um, so I started doing that. I, I, I would go on a reporting trip between Christmas and New between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, go to the bureaus. Uh, so from New York, I would go to the bureaus in, in Germany, uh, Bloomberg bureaus in Germany, Switzerland, and and Austria. And you know the stories I came back with were these stories about you know that mix the financial and the historical and 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 the the historical and 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 and, and German business. And, you know, what, what I found particularly, you know, what struck me particularly and the reason I ended up writing the book was um, this, you know, the brazen whitewashing that was going on by, by the families that, um, you know, still the German business families that still control BMW or Porsche today and that are, you know, celebrating the business successes of their patriarchs through you know, global foundations, dynasties, uh, to global foundations, media prizes, you know, corporate headquarters and um, and such. And, but, but you know, leaving out their war crimes. And that's the reason I, I wrote the book, you know, it's an argument in favor of historical transparency. So I just want to get this out of the way first. Um, I think it, I think it's interesting because when I was growing up, we didn't necessarily learn about these sort of business families and uh, their ties to the Third Reich. Uh, and I don't want people to think that this is, um, you know, some completely, totally uncharted territory. There, there has been other right. authors in the past that have uh, written about this in various ways. And you, you even uh, referenced some of them in the book. Uh, I think uh, Henry Turner, uh, author of uh, German Big Business and, and uh, the Nazis and other books. So Maybe you could just explain to my listeners that there is sort of a, a, a long history of research behind this that maybe they're unaware of. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's a good, there's a solid historiography, which mainly looks, I mean, there's, it's two-pronged, you know, there's, there's one strand of historiography by uh, professors like Henry Ashby Turner, who's before, uh, a Princeton professor who's, who's uh, unfortunately no longer alive, who wrote this kind of seminal book called a big business in the rise of Nazi Germany, but it only looks at the era before Hitler seized power or, you know, or and the three weeks after. And then of course, there's many monographies that were researched and written by various historians on company, there were commissioned studies uh, on companies like Deutsche Bank, um, Allianz, um, Daimler Benz, uh, Volkswagen, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which 
mainly were only published in German. Some, a few exceptions there, like Allianz and um, Deutsche Bank. But you know, with, with, with naming those 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 few brands, I mean, there's of course many that have not done any uh, that have not commissioned any research into into their their, their company's history in the Third Reich, uh, even those that were known to be deeply complicit. If you could, uh, since we had mentioned uh, Henry Turner, you start the book out by talking about uh, a sort of secret meeting that took place, I believe in, uh, what was it? Uh, February 20th, 1933, exactly. Yeah, 20th February, uh, February 20th, 1933. Could you talk a little bit about that meeting between Hitler and the German industrialists? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, Hitler seizes power on January 30th, 1933. And at that point in time, doesn't really have any kind of meaningful bar, like two exceptions, meaningful support of uh, the German, uh, of German big business. Um, and... He summons, or Hermann Hermann Göring, his his right hand man, uh, summons um, the you know twenty like two dozen of Germany's wealthiest and most powerful businessmen and, and executives and financiers and business heirs to the presidential palace. He Hermann Göring at that point is the president of of, of the German Parliament, the Reichstag, and um, he. You know, he summons the man, and on the on and in the invitation it says, you know, that Hitler is going to explain his um, his economic policies to these two dozen of men. But it actually turns out to be, you know, a summoning for with an entirely purpose altogether, um, where. These men are asked to pony up because the Nazi party is broke and they need to stage one final election campaign uh, for the campaign on March 5th, 1933, um, where, you know, both Hitler and Goering to the men explicitly promise it's going to be the last um election or national election in, in, in German in Germany for the next 10 years, if not a hundred years. You know, and these men have no or these businessmen have no qualms about, you know, paying up to end German democracy, which is explicitly promised to them. So, you know, it is the it's the most indicative example of this collaboration of um Nazi of, of Nazi Germany uh, or uh, between big business and the, and the Hitler and the Hitler's regime from the outset. I was just going to add to that really uh, quickly. Uh, there, there's that famous line I think uh, that Hitler gave in a speech at this meeting where he says, "Private enterprise cannot be maintained yeah. in the age of democracy." Yeah. And uh, one of the figures yeah. I believe that is at this uh, meeting is someone who is very central to your book, and that's um, Gunther. Quant, could you talk a little bit about the Quant family? Sure. Günther Quant was a patriarch of the of the Quant business dynasty, which today is still 
Germany's most powerful or wealthiest and, and arguably also most economically and politically powerful business dynasty. Two of Günter Kwan's grandchildren are the controlling shareholders of BMW today. Um, and Günter Kwan, you know, came from a wealthy textile family um, or textile producing family outside of Berlin, um, in the provinces outside of Berlin. And he really got his, or, or, or became, you know, exceptionally wealthy during the hyperinflation era of the Weimar Republic by staging hostile takeovers of, 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 of companies that were not doing very well. Um, a, a global battery company called AFA, mainly known today as Varta, which produces the batteries in, um, in AirPods, uh, among other things, uh, as well as DWM, which is a massive uh, armaments uh, manufacturer. And, you know, Günter Quandt, who was a sheer opportunist, like many characters in the book, in my book, ended up being one of the largest profiteers of one of Germany's largest arms producers, one of the largest profiteers of um, the arianizations or expropriations of Jewish owned assets and, 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 and companies in German occupied territories during the Second World War. And also one of the largest uh, exploiters in, in private business of of, of forced and uh, slave labor. And if we could, I also wanted to get into who are the victims of this sort of Aryanization campaign. I know, uh, in particular, you focus on the figure of Alfred Rosenberger. Could you talk a little bit yes. about that? Absolutely. Alfred Rosenberger was the um, co-founder. Was one of the three co-founders of um, the Porsche car design firm. Um, he founded in December 1930 uh, with Ferdinand Porsche and, and his son-in-law, uh, Anton Pierre. Um, Adolf Rosenberger was a former race car driver who had become kind of the financial backer of, of, of Ferdinand Porsche, who was a very brilliant but mercurial um, car designer. Um, and Anton Pierre was was Fernand Porsche's son-in-law and was a was a tough Viennese lawyer. And he, out of Rosenberger, you know, seeded the founding capital for for the Porsche car design firm. Um, and because after his active racing career, he went into investment in his in his hometown near Stuttgart, and then teamed up with with Rosenberg with uh, with Fernand Porsche and, and Anton Pierre to. To to found the to find, to to establish the um, the Porsche car design firm, and he resigns. Uh, out of Rosenberger resigns on January thirtieth, nineteen thirty three, the day Hitler seizes power, not because out of Rosenberger is Jewish, but because the which he is, but because the Porsche car design firm is on the is on the brink of bankruptcy. Um, you know, Fernand Porsche is spending prolifically on its designs, and. Out of Rosenberger is fed up with raising money from friends and family to keep the Porsche company afloat. Um, they were barely getting any, you know, they were barely getting barely getting any uh, assignments to 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 design cars. 
So he resigns and he arranges for a successor, which even brings in a bridge loan so that the, the company can stay afloat. But he, he stays on, Rosenberger stays on as a successor. Now, all of that changes in July 1935, when out of Rosenberger is pushed out of the Porsche car design firm by um, Ferdinand Porsche and Anton Pierre uh, and signs over his or sells his his uh, stake in the Porsche car design company, uh, his 10% stake to Ferry Porsche, which is a son of Ferdinand Porsche and the later designer of the Porsche uh, of the first Porsche sports car for the same. And he signs over his shares for the same nominal value um, that he that he uh, the same nominal value as his as a seed capital back in December 1930th. But in the meantime, the which doesn't reflect the market value of his actual shares, which in the meantime has, and because in the meantime, the Porsche car design firm has become highly profitable um, as, you know, the, uh, because of course, uh, Ferdinand Porsche in the meantime has convinced Adolf Hitler to, to have him uh, design the Volkswagen, uh, the people's car. And suddenly, you know, Porsche has become Hitler's favorite engineer and is very, and, and you know, there's, there's uh, tenders and assignments fleeing uh, or, 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 you know, going towards the Porsche car design firm and has become a very profitable enterprise. Um, so that is an Aryanization. You know, an Aryanization is, you know, is, is a hor horrible euphemism for the removing of, of kind of the, the, the Jewish, you know, any any aspect of Jewish owned uh, ownership or of Jewish ownership from an asset, whether it's shares or company or real estate or jewelry or art. So that share transfer where Adolf Rosenberg only receives a nominal value for his shares as opposed to 3,000 Reichsmark as opposed to the market value of the shares is a clear-cut case of Aryanization. And, um, you know, that which initially, particularly in when it happens with Adolf Rosenberger in July 1935, still has the veneer of a legal business transaction, which is very important in the early days of the, of, of or the early years of um, the Third Reich but ends up uh, going, you know, ends up becoming um, a, you know, ends up going into outright robbery uh, as the 1930s progress and as the persecution of, of Jewish citizens of, of Nazi Germany, you know, as, a, as the disenfranchisement and, and the persecution against Jewish citizens of, the, of Nazi Germany are, are ramped up. And so, in other words, uh, families like a Porsche, um... And the uh, other one, um, Anton. Pierre, Pierre. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they both yeah. sort of benefit from this persecution. Totally. Yeah, because they are, they're able to, or, or Ferry Porsche is, uh, particularly the Porsche family is able to benefit from it because they are able to secure uh, shares uh, cheaply, um, you know, from, from, from out of Rosenberger you know, on the account of him being a Jewish, Jewish citizen of the, of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Third Reich. 
One thing I wanted to get into uh, in the course of this conversation is uh, you, you had mentioned uh, how there was a lot of opportunism um, for these figures yeah. involved. And I, I'm curious because I think since we had mentioned the Henry Turner book uh, earlier, uh, Turner sort of takes this view uh, that, uh, you know, they weren't really involved in the, the rise of Hitler. A lot of these industrialists, they, you know, sort of just went along with it. Do you yeah. think it is just opportunism or is there some ideological component to some of this? I mean, it, it, of the five families I write about in my book, I would argue that, you know, Günter Quandt and Friedrich Flick, two of the main characters, were really sheer opportunists. Whereas, you know, other families in the book, like I was von Fink um, and and uh, Richard Kazalowski and Rudolf August Utker and Ferry Porsche and Anton Pierre. Were, were ideological Nazis, but it was it, it tended to be the opportunists who you know were often more successful in in in, in business than the ideologues because the opportunists really only cared about business, but some of the ideologues made business decisions that favored the Nazi party but were detrimental to their business interests. Could you talk a little bit about the von Finks? Yeah, the von Finks is are a. Um, you know, financiers family that co-founded Allianz and Munich Re, which are, you know, two of the largest insurers and reinsurers today. And August von Fink Sr., you know, inherited not only the supervisory board chairmanships of his father, upon his father's death at the tender age of 25, but also the largest stakes in, in two of the world's largest insurers um, in, in the 1920s. Uh, and also, you know, uh, tens of, of, of thousands of acres of, of, of farmland in, in, in Munich and a private bank called Merck Fink. And he, you know, I was from Fink was, you know, already quite a radical, you know, a Nazi radical or was an ideologue or was already deeply, a deeply reactionary man. And he, um, you know, was tasked with Hitler um, with Aryanite, so with, with, with fundraising, because he wasn't only Bavaria's wealthiest man, I was from Fink, but he was also it's stingiest, uh, or at least according to the Nazi party. So he was tasked with instead of, you know, because Nazi was like, oh, he's not going to spend any money of his own. So we're tasking him, or Hitler tasked him with, with fundraising for one of Hitler's pet projects, which was the House of German Art, um, which is a monumental building that's still standing in Munich today, in the center of Munich today. Um, and I was, I think, you know, successfully raised 20 million Reichsmark um, for you know, for the museum from his fellow tycoons and financiers. And as a thank you for that, you know, the, the museum opened in 1937. He was tasked with it in 1933. He got to Aryanize the Rothschild, the SM Rothschild Bank in, in, in Vienna, which at the time was Austria's largest private bank, and the Dreyfus Bank in, in, in Berlin, which was also one of, one of Germany's premier uh, private banks. And, so yeah, go on. No, please, please, please. So oh, I, I guess I, I, I wanted to get into the Von Finks because it seems like 
Uh, you know, August von Fink's uh, son was also right. involved with uh, the far right in the form of uh, potentially supporting the AFD in Germany, right? Yes. Yeah, so August von Fink Jr., who, you know, it's the only example I have in my book of somebody, of, of like there's a direct continuation from an ideolo ideological far-right father to an ideological far-right son. I was something junior who died in November 2021 at the age of 91 in London, actually ended up, you know, becoming one of Germany's or Europe's wealthiest investors following his father's death, you know, much of it, of course, inherited. And, um, you know, starts funding far-right libertarian, uh, well, these are completely different things. But on one hand, right-wing, far-right causes, and at the other hand, also libertarian causes. Um, and, and yeah, and, and you know, was um, very, very likely um, you know, uh, very likely involved with the funding of the of the AFD, which is, you know, Germany's first far right, which in 2017 entered Germany's um, parliament as the first far right party to, to, to enter Germany's parliament in 65 years. And yeah, uh, that, you know, it's, it hasn't been proven, but it, there's, there's a lot of signs pointing towards, which of course is, you know, quite shocking on many fronts. Yeah, and that also leads me to, you know, I, I think it's important that we note that, you know, the, the generation that went through uh, the Holocaust, they're, they're, you know, they're beginning to become, uh, they're falling into the, the passage of historical memory. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, I wanted yeah. to talk about how, you know, that's affecting Germany right now, because we're seeing sort of the rise of the far right in multiple parts of the world, in, including in Germany. And I was wondering if you could talk about uh, figures like the Quant siblings and the sort of rise of the far right uh, in places like Germany. I know the Quants aren't necessarily supporters of the far right, but uh, just maybe how they're not reckoning with the past and how there's also this rise of the far right that is kind of wanting to ignore this history. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, on one hand, you know, you have the grandchildren of, or two of the grandchildren of, of Günter Quandt, uh, Susanne Klatten and, and, and uh, Stefan Quandt, who are BMW's controlling shareholders and Germany's wealthiest family, who are, you know, maintaining a foundation in the name of Herbert Quandt, who was their father, who saved BMW from bankruptcy in 1959. Um, but also committed war crimes. So today you have the BMW Foundation, Herbert Quant, which has a motto, inspire responsible leadership on the basis of Herbert Quant having, um, you know, having saved BMW, having saved BMW from bankruptcy in 1959, but also having perpetrated war crimes, you know, uh, designing, planning and building a sub-concentration camp, um, having the responsibility over thousands of forced enslaved laborers in, in battery factories in Berlin, uh, having deployed, you know, having exploited 
um, you know, uh, forced laborers and prisoners of war at his own private estate, and having having acquired companies seized uh, seized from Jews in France, and none of that is mentioned, you know, on the BMW Foundation Herbert Kwan's website. Uh, so it's perverse, you know, in my opinion, to have a slogan like "Inspire Responsible Leadership." And, and, and while whitewashing um, the history of the Quant family, uh, or at least of Herbert Quant, you know, um, celebrating his business successes, but ignoring his war crimes. And I, I mentioned the AFD in that regard, because I think at one point in the book, you talk about how the AFD, when this sort of scandal about Herbert Quant sort of re-arose in the public consciousness, the AFD was basically saying, uh, oh, you know, we need to consider the, the merits of uh, yeah. Herbert Quant's business after the war yeah. and, you know, how much exactly. he did. You know? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, exactly. The AFD, exactly one of the AFD business or council members in Munich, when the discussion came about, which is still ongoing in Munich, um, about the, you know, renaming of Herbert of the Herbert Quant Street, which I would cynically is located between a former uh, prisoners of war camp where Russian prisoners, prisoners of war were, uh, were held and between a, a cemetery where some of Germany's most well-known uh, resistance fighters uh, lie um, are buried um, you know and then and then this AFD guy was, was saying yeah but we have to consider Herbert Quant's you know contributions to post-war Germany and and then you know the historian in charge of renaming encountered you know somebody who sinned against you know somebody who committed war crimes doesn't deserve a relative relativizing view of his overall life, which I think was a very strong response. I'm interested in the American role in all of this, and and you right, have two course. Americans at the sort of center of this in your book, uh, yeah. Telford Tiller and John J. McCloy. And what role do the Americans play in maybe? I mean, is it whitewashing of the? German industrialists that were involved with Hitler? How, how would you put it? You know, it was the, the, the decision that the Truman administration ends up making and which, you know, is, is, is continued under the Eisenhower administration um, is, you know, it's, I wouldn't call it whitewashing, I would call it political expediency. You know, when the Cold War emerged in early 1947, a policy decision was made by the Truman administration that basically... Nazi Germany and Nazis were were um, ancient history, and you know they, you know, and 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 the and the prosecution of Nazi of suspected Nazi war criminals and, and Nazi sympathizers were you know were very limited, were became very limited, ended up being very limited, and. There was an accelerated handover initiated of suspected Nazi war criminals and sympathizers back to Germany, who, of course, had zero incentive to to prosecute their own compatriots for crimes and and you know sympathies that they themselves held for many you know for for many years or had had, had, had themselves perpetrated or held for many many years. You know, it was this flawed legal process of denazification that was initiated as a result. 
which saw you know hundreds of thousands of Germans, if not millions, go scot free for the crimes that committed during the Third Reich, and, and you know their crimes were buried, or at least in West Germany, in East Germany as well. But it was a different, it was a bit of a different story. And you know, John, it's uh, Telford Taylor, you know, ends up being the prosecutor, the lead prosecutor in the so-called twelve successor trials to the main Nuremberg trial. Which saw you know three three trials against industrialists like Friedrich Flick, one of the main characters in my book, Alfred Krupp, of the Krupp Steel Conglomerate, and the IG and the entire executive board of IG Farm. Yeah, I, I like that the there's a character in your book that says to uh, Telford Taylor that uh, Flick is the the modern day German robber baron. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. It's it's Joseph Marku who was one. Of the American investigators or task of investigated Friedrich Flick to build a case against him at, at Nuremberg. And, um, you know, Joseph Marku was right. You know, Friedrich Flick was able to become Germany's wealthiest man in 1930, 1945. And after his conviction for war crimes and crimes against, against humanity at Nuremberg, was released by John J. McCloy, who was the High Commissioner for Occupied Germany. And, you know, again, an, a political expedient decision was made, particularly by McCoy, to, with the emergence of the Cold of not only of the Cold War, but also particularly of the Korean War in 1950, that they needed, you know, a, a, a strong West Germany, or they, you know, they want, they, they, the political expedient decision was made that West Germany, which was fed up of seeing their men imprisoned, uh, on their own by 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 foreign forces in their own country, you know, um, started releasing or commuting the sentences or, or commuting death sentences of, you know, former SS officers who had slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, mainly Jews, um, as well as, you know, commuting the 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 the, um, the, the sentences of men like Friedrich Flick and Alfred Krupp. And the Eagle Farm and Executive Board, and you know, uh, everybody, you know, the, the business families in West Germany were able were allowed to keep their assets in Western Germany. Germany. So Friedrich Flick, once he got out, once released on good behavior by John J. McCloy in 1950, within a decade he's back on top as Germany's wealthiest man, as the controlling shareholder of, of Daimler Benz. If I remember, I think Flick too sort of said, "Oh, that you know." I, I wasn't, they, they were just going after me because they were patriotic Americans and they, they, they yeah, weren't basically. giving me a fair uh, shake. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so that's literally what he said. Yeah. This was a trial. It was an American trial. You know, everybody, magistrates were American, everybody, you know, so, you know, uh, he didn't, he saw himself as innocent and he dismissed it all as kind of an American show trial, which it wasn't. It was a very, you know, incredibly thorough and an important trial. So uh, ju just to clarify here, it, it sounds like uh, McCloy was the one that, you know, sort of, um, we, we didn't get justice, so to speak. Right, 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 exactly. Not real justice. In some ways, uh, a, a much more principled character. I, I like that line uh, he has where he says, a dictatorship is successful, not because everybody opposes it, but because powerful groups support it. And yeah. I, I guess uh, I, I want you to comment on uh, that quote, and maybe what should we get out of this book um, when it comes to issues like uh, capitalism and, and what is the responsibility of someone that's in industry that is a, a titan of capital when sure. it comes to politics? 
you know, I think capitalism itself is amoral, right? The, 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 the ways that these men profited from the Nazi regime at first was, you know, through the production of arms, you know, when the rearmament, it was initiated in 1934 and the production was star and, and, and rearmament was initiated and billions of Reichsmark, you know, flew into their coffers. That in itself wasn't criminal, you know, make producing arms itself isn't criminal, but it's, or isn't, isn't, that's just, you know, profiting from, that's just profiting from business, but it's a sliding scale where, you know, it starts with arm production, it goes into Aryanization of, 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 and, of, and disenfranchisement of, 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 of Jewish business owners in Nazi Germany, then it goes to expropriation um, of, of, business owners in, in German-occupied territories, and it ends up, you know, with the mass exploitation of, of forced slave laborers, many, you know, concentration camp captives from Auschwitz and, and others, who, many of them who end up dying um, in the factories and mines of, 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 the, of the business patriarchs I write about, or family patriarchs I write about. And are, are these business patriarchs, are they necessary to the, the sort of rise of the Nazis or, or the success of the Nazis once they're in power? I mean, I always, I always think that you know, had it not been them, there would have been others that had that had filled their shoes. You know what I mean? Are they necessary as individuals? No, as as producers, as you know, as as modes of production. I mean, you know, they're they're conduits in a way. You know, they're the faces of of of. They're the faces of these faceless companies and brands, which they control, which they lead, which they own. Um, had it not been for them, it would have. I it would have. I would have written about five other families, you know. So, in closing, I'm curious what you hope uh, listeners get out of this conversation and uh, the book itself, because I, I think it's an interesting book. Because you know, if people know a little bit about Germany, they'll know that I, I think Germany has tried to do a lot to reckon sure. with its past. Yeah. Uh, but this aspect hasn't necessarily been reckoned with as well. No. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, it's something that you that you see in many different other countries as well. It's that the most powerful and the wealthiest in Germany are sidestepping, uh, you know, a true transparent reckoning with the crimes of their of their fathers and grandfathers, who of course caused them to be this wealthy in the first place, right? And um, so, you know, what, what I want really to take out of it, I mean, they should make up their own minds, but first of all, you know, it's, you know, learning, you know, you only learn from business by showing the good, you only learn from history by showing the good and the bad. Just by showing the good, it's, it's just a whitewash. Secondly, I think, you know, for business leaders, they should be very mindful of history, you know, also in making their long-term decisions or like business planning, et cetera. Because so often you've seen in the recent years, you see that today, you know, the collaboration between, between authoritarian regimes and business is is extremely insidious and 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 goes to the detriment of, of societies and of and of particular vulnerable group, groups in societies. 
And thirdly, you know, I think consumers should be aware that the money that they spend on products controlled by these families, whether it's BMW or Volkswagen or Porsche or Bentley or Lamborghini or Rolls Royce or Mini or Audi, you know, or, or, or something else entirely. These are all car brands, but there's, they, they, they control many other uh, consumer brands too, could end up as, you know, could potentially end up as a dividend of these families and that go towards maintaining, you know, charitable foundations, media prizes, corporate headquarters, and uh, academic chairs in the name of, the, of their Nazi war criminal patriarchs. Real quick, too, I just wanted to clarify this. Um, sure. So w- with regards to these families, some of them are still involved in, you know, the business world, but other ones, uh, they, they've got the spoils of, of their their right. uh, patriarch's fortunes, and now they just sort of manage the wealth in their estate, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, they manage the billions that, that they're, they don't have an operated business anymore. They just manage billions yeah, or just they manage billions. Yeah. And I, hopefully someday uh, they'll reckon with this past and the other families you talk about will reckon with it. Uh, yeah. Just let my listeners know how they can get a copy of the book. I, I believe they can probably get it from their favorite independent booksellers, but uh, yes. anything else you want to say? Yeah, uh, get your book at your local independent bookseller or at, um, at bookshop.org. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at uh, David DeYoung. Um, yeah, you can find me there and uh, enjoy the read. Thank you again, David DeYoung. Thank you, JG. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David DeYoung and that you'll check out his book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. We're now in the month of July. I was a bit slow in uploading podcasts during June, and also uh, there was not as much Patreon content as I wanted to get up. That's going to change this month. I was having a few health issues, I was feeling very under the weather throughout a good part of June, so now that things have sort of calmed down for me, I'm hoping that I can pick up speed again, and if you've had any issues with the Patreon, just shoot me an email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com. I'll fix any of that been behind on a lot of things, but that's all about to change as we head into July. So we're getting back on schedule here at Parallax Views. I should be releasing a few more shows next week. I am back on track, and I thank you for sticking with me during these crazy times that we're living in. Uh, have had some personal things to deal with lately, so thank you for sticking beside me through this period. As always, if you can, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Any amount of donations you can make to the show will help. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax Jerilax View with Jerilax The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. 
that you prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.